Hey, all right. So I am now aligned with a Mr. Eddie Vince, who is a traveling Simba and Zumba instructor. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you currently live in Portland, or, or um, Portland, Oregon, but you were born in Guinea-Bissau, which is in West Africa, correct? Correct. You were you grew up in Portugal, is that right? Correct. You do you did your homework. I tried to, I tried to, bro. So, um, if I'm not mistaken, you started teaching Kizuma back in 2010. Um, and you are also the founder of Patonga Dance. Is that correct? Correct. Hey, hey, how you doing today, Eddie? Okay. Truly, I actually started teaching in 2009. Okay, but, okay. Uh, it was just a brief uh, experience, which I realized at the time that I was really, really, really bad. <laughs> So I had to stop for, I stopped like two or three months and then I restarted in 2010. Okay. Okay. Sure enough, bro. I definitely understand that. You know, I want to, I want to start out, Eddie. Um, I'm very curious to hear about, I guess, your childhood in Guinea-Bissau, man. What, what was that like? You know, what do you remember of it? Okay. I actually lived in my country till 11 years old. Okay. And then from Guinea, I moved to Portugal. Obviously, I, I do recollect, I do remember a few things, but I never returned. So right now, I would actually love to return. Uh, but unfortunately, my country is the 13th poorest country in the planet. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, and there is always politic, uh, polit- conflict conflicts there. Uh, right now, I know that they are having issues with prime minister, something like that. So it become a very unstable country. Um, although I would love to return, but I feel like, because right now I have three children, and my dream would actually to take my wife and my children and go there, but it's not safe. I understand, man. Which is sad because my country has eighty-eight beautiful islands oh man um no one used them for anything okay man I- i'm curious man tell me um still i still would love to hear about your childhood man what was your childhood like growing up in, in guinea bissau um how can i explain uh so guinea or most of portuguese countries that were colonized by portugal we are actually the last one uh, having the decolonization so the Portugal was kicked out of my country in 75. I was born in 77. So I was literally born two years after. Uh, what I remember is we did spend, we had some difficult times uh, because when Portugal left, they kind of took everything that belonged to them and they left the country. So we were left without electricity, without water, uh, without food. It doesn't matter. You could have money, but you would not be able to buy it because we had nothing. Right, the infrastructure, I guess, right? Right, the infrastructure, yes. So we almost had to return or restart from zero. And I actually make jokes because, you know... I, I love water with sugar. Okay, sugar water, sir. <laughs> yeah, and now I understand why. It's because at the time, we had nothing else. 
and if you had bread, you would just put sugar with water and you would mix it and eat to to survive because right, right. Uh, if you have like a big family and most of the time you didn't have enough food for them. Uh, I actually have a story that is very funny because one of the things that we have in my country, it's rice. So we have rice that grow everywhere. So everybody, if you know someone from Guinea, the joke is they like rice with everything. <laughs> they eat rice with everything. Um, I grew up eating rice with spaghetti, okay. with pasta. And everybody makes jokes about it because they're like, how are you going to mix pasta with rice? And for many years, it was a joke. Till actually, uh, I spoke with my father and he was explaining to me that there was, that came from a need. Because right, right, right. If you have a big family and you have just a box of pasta, you want everybody want to eat that pasta, but it's not enough to feed everybody. So we would mix pasta with rice, but that was the need. But we, as a child, we would think that is part of culture. It's just uh, an habit we have in terms of eating, and then you grow up with it. Even today, that when you don't have need. You end up being part of your of your culture, right, right, right. So it's funny how things start without, and we think that it's culturally. When many times it's what I call uh, imposed culture, which is something that we don't want, but we need to to use it to survive. To survive, exactly. Yeah, you're adapting with your 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 environment, man. Exactly. I understand that, man. I, I'm very curious, man. Um, you know, growing up in, in Guinea in Guinea Bissau, um, you know, I guess what did your parents do? You know, what, what was their occupation at that time? Okay, so actually I came from a, a very uh I would say a rich family. Mm. But well, being rich in my country doesn't mean that you are rich outside of my country. Right, yeah, I understand. Uh, a rich person or rich family in my country is a median class in Portugal uh, because you have the money, which at the time was pesos, and when you would uh, exchange into escudos, which is the Portuguese money before the euros, uh, it would not help you in anything. Okay. So, because my parents and my family had money. My mom, she studied in Portugal and my father also studied in Portugal. My father is an anthropologist. Uh, and my mom, she used to work uh, for bank, the national bank. And then we all had to immigrate. So truly, I, my father and my mom, they had me, but they never married. So each of them had their own uh, marriage with other people. So I do have six sisters, but for Africans, it's all sisters. We don't actually define half sister. Uh, okay, right. So we family period. Uh, so my father left to Portugal. He studied in, in Mali and Germany. And then he finished his university in Portugal. He got married there. 
my mom got married with another person and she moved to France. So my mom still lives uh, in France till today with her husband. And my father, his wife died in 91. And he still lives in Portugal. Okay, okay. Take it, come here. Hey, if you can leave a like and subscribe, that would be amazing for the channel. Let's get back to the show. Okay, okay, man. That's um, that's kind of tough, man. Yeah, it's African life. Okay, I understand. I'm I'm curious, man. I'm very curious to hear, man. Um, you know, I guess what were some of your childhood hobbies growing up? You know, and get and get in a. Oh, I have many. Uh, I have many. Like I said, I cannot complain because the time we were there. Uh, I had a, a normal life that any child would have in in Europe or Western society. A part of the difficulties that we had uh, after the colonization, uh, but I think I had a normal life. Knowing that the African culture is different than any Western culture, uh, when you live in a uh, tropical country uh you know we don't have four seasons we have two seasons <laughs> we have raining season and no raining season uh so one of the things that i remember is raining season for us children was the best because in africa or, or in tropical countries when it rains it's like uh when you go to miami or florida it rains like very strong and then t- for 20 minutes and then it disappeared and the sun comes, and five minutes later, you don't even realize that it actually rained. And right. one of the things I remember is every time it was raining, all the children, we, we would knock other people's houses to call all the children so we could go out and play soccer. Uh-huh. Because playing soccer in the rain was one of the, it was, for me, it was one of the best recollections I have. Uh, so I've never heard of that. Why, why soccer in the rain? Where did that come from? Well, it, it can be soccer. It can be any other thing that children does. Uh, a part of America, a part of USA, you know that all every other country we love soccer, uh, which is football, the real football, the real football, <laughs> the one that people use foot to play a ball. But Americans love to change things, so they use something they use with hands. But they still call it football. Should be good. So it should sense. be called handball. It's just a handball. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and then I moved to Portugal. Uh, I had to adapt natural to a to a a new culture uh, where it was very difficult because I moved to Portugal in '86 and. At that time, as you can imagine, uh, African people, or for, for Portuguese people, we are all Africans. So it doesn't matter if I came from Angola, if I came from Cap Verde, if I came from uh, Guinea-Bissau, I'm all black. We're right, all black. right, right. Uh, so I end up getting to a new reality where I realized that now, the skin of my, uh, the color of my skin was playing a huge role. The way people would treat me, the way, we, uh, the way people would talk with me. Uh, so, 
we just had to adapt. And you adapt and you live in this type of uh, this type of uh, how you say environment. And then there is so many things that today I realize how racist was, but at the time, you know, you are a child, you don't really understand things. Right, right. Uh, so I always, this is one of the things that I use in my classes to explain to people that the hug, because when we talk about Kizomba, the dance, we always talk about feeling, how important is the feeling, and how the hug is important. And sometimes I realize, actually, we can spend hours explaining, but if someone never actually leave what we leave, they will, it will, they will not understand. They can try to relate, but still it's not the same thing. Hey, I definitely understand that. I, I want to, I definitely want to get into all that, man, but I'm very curious. I'm very curious to know, man, um, what made you and your family move to Portugal? And, and did you leave, did you leave with your dad or is that who you left with? No, no, no. I moved with my, my mom uh. Uh, and my grandmother. Um, and I only met my dad when I was 11. Oh, so you only met your dad one time? I met my, yeah, till 11, I never met my dad. Oh, wow. Then after 11 was when I met my dad. And I was, I lived with him till 17. And that's it. Okay. Do you have a relationship with them now? Yeah, very good. Very okay, good. Okay, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Very good. Well, what what made your mother and your grandmother move to uh, Portugal, man? What happened? Uh, looking for a better life. Right. When you live in a in a situation and you have children, which now I understand, you try to find the best the best for them. And if the best for them is not where you you were born or raised, you're gonna immigrate. Right, right. You're gonna travel to try to see, to try to find the best thing for your for your family. And and you you kind of already spoke on it, man. Um, you say you know you experienced some racism, man. But I'm very curious to hear, man. Tell me about your transition to Portugal, man. You know what was it like, you know, moving to Portugal, and what was it like living in Portugal? Okay, uh, because I live most of my life in Portugal. I do consider Portugal my country. Yeah. Uh, the culture, they are not so difficult, different than us because they colonized us for almost 500 years. So we got to a point that it's very, very hard for us Africans to say, this is my culture, this is 100% my culture. When 500 years, you have many mixed things that you end up not knowing would really belong to you or not. So... My transition was a transition for children. Normally, I think that children don't really feel affected because for children, for 11 years old ch- child, what I want, I, I just, for me, it's a new country. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Uh, I meet new people. I go to school. Well, we also had another, uh, another advantage that the language was the same. Because we're colonized by Portuguese, so we speak Portuguese. Okay. Uh, I do have my own language, which we call it Criolo. Uh, but the national language is Portuguese, so I knew how to speak the language. So I had not, I didn't have that barrier. Right. Uh, straight. 
and then it was just a matter of making friends in schools and adapting and all those things. Mm, okay, I I I want to ask you this real quick, man. Um, you know, I, I guess how how important was music in your childhood, growing up in you know Guinea as well as Portugal? You know, how important was music, man? Okay, uh, as African, the most important thing is music. Mm. It's uh, it's funny because for us, music is rhythm. We are talking right now, we're creating rhythm. Exactly. You have rhythm in your voice. The sound of the cars that pass on the street, they create rhythm. Everything is rhythm. So you grow up with music in the house, music in radio, music everywhere. You see your family dancing because we love to dance. And in Africa, the, the biggest thing is dance culture. Okay. Uh, in my country, you have 33 different ethnics. And inside of these, those 33 ethnics, they all have their own dance, their own traditional dance. So when you are there, you end up in radio. It's a mix of all of them, which for us, we just see it as one. Mm. But then later, when you become older, you realize, okay, so this is actually belong to this music and genre. <clears throat> and this one belongs to this one, and so on, and so on. And then... Every, every child that belongs to a different culture, when they move to a new country, they end up in between two cultures, always. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Two or more. So I had my African culture in my house from my parents, and I have the Portuguese culture outside of my house through the school and my friends and so on and so on. The same thing happened with my son that moved to USA two years ago. And he was born and raised in Portugal. And in his case, it was actually a bit harder because he did not just move into a different culture, he moved to a different language. Okay. And my, my, my son arrived on, in August, and a few weeks after, he was already in school without yeah. even understanding the language. Okay. He would understand a little bit, but obviously he, wasn't, he could not speak it fluently. So... But I think that when we are uh, ch children, when we are young, it's always easier to adapt to uh, any other country than actually when you are already an adult and when you already uh, have your life in some place. So I think it was, it was normal. It was what every children would pass. But the both culture made me richer uh, because it made me understand the Western culture and African culture. And although we already danced in Kizomba, which at the time we do, we would not call it Kizomba. We used to call it Pasada. Pasada, right? Which Pasada literally means steps. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but again, Pasada was not the name of any dance. It was just the way we would uh, call every time you would dance. Uh, you would dance into Zouk song, we'd call it Pasada. You would dance into Semba song, we'd call it Pasada. So Pasada was mainly the steps that we would do uh, in any music, but as a couple, not solo. Right, right, right. Uh, so for me, I feel like today 
uh, any children that actually live in between different cultures is actually richer than a children that was only born and raised in one culture and only born and raised in one language and only knows one language. So I, I'm happy that I went through that yeah. process. No, definitely. You, you have, um, I feel like, you know, you have more experiences to draw upon. So not only from, you know, I guess your original country, original culture, but also to where you moved to. So I definitely understand what you mean by that, man. Yeah, definitely. I, I consider myself a globetrotter okay. because I was born in Guinea, living in Guinea till 11 years old. From 11 till 30, I live in Portugal. Then I live one year in France and then I return to Portugal and then I move to England and I live in England for seven years. And from England, I live, now I live in USA. Okay. So You are traveling, man. Yeah, so I believe that Again, every time I went through those process to understand the culture, I believe that it made me richer. And the more important, it made me respect and understand the culture to understand that it's not everything that I was raised or I consider right means right. Because we all came from different experiences of life. And instead of just pointing fingers to someone, we actually should uh, be able to understand the person more. Uh, the same as when we see a, a, someone that lives on the street or a, a, someone, a drunk person or a drug, someone in drugs, it's easy for us to just point finger and try to avoid to be around the person. But sometimes the person is on that situation not because he chose to be. There is so many things in his life that took him to that direction, which I believe that every choice we do in life always takes us to one direction and is the choices we're making and the options we're taking uh, regularly that will always going to open a new opportunity or not. We're always going to take us to a, a better place or not. Yeah. So, and England for me was the best country I've lived. Oh that. yeah? Okay. Especially London because London is a part of all type of cultures you can imagine. It's a melting pot, kind of like New York, yes. right? Yes. And when you get when you get to live there and you start to your neighbor is from India or from China or from Korea, then you understand because we used to call every Asian person Chinese. And they're not. Which the same thing, we Africans we would not be happy if they call all Africa all black people or all black people Africans. We are like, no, Africa is a continent. You need to understand, blah blah. So it just made us understand that, you know what, we all grew up with prejudice about something and we need to get to a stage where we respect people. So in England, I actually managed to get to understand that, okay, so this type of structure is Korean, that person is maybe Chinese, that person is from uh, Cambodia, that person is from Vietnam. So it made me understand that we need to respect everybody. Right. And actually, the beautiful of England is that it made me understand that there is actually only one race, human race. Mm -hmm. And all the color race that we create is just humans that want power and they use it as a weapon. I believe that. I definitely understand that, man. Um, I'm very curious, man, to hear, um, you know, I guess going back to when you were in 
Guinea, what were what were the music genres you were listening to? Was it Kizumba? Was it Simba? Or was it other 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 genres of music as well? Okay, when I was in Guinea, Kizumba did not exist. The oh, music. Wow. Okay. Uh, so we used to listen Compa from IT from Haiti, right? Yeah, we used to listen to merengue. Okay, we used to really. To song. Okay, so very important to understand. And we Africans, we actually had the Third World War. The Third World War did happen in Africa, okay? Uh, which you guys in America, you call it uh, Cold War. So Cold War was mainly uh, America, uh, which was capitalist, uh, fighting against communism. So once the Second World War was finished, and all Europeans and Western countries realized, whoa, damn, Africa is full of uh, natural resource. Natural resource that we need to keep evol- evolving and keep being rich. So in, in Italy, I think it was in Italy, I don't remember. They did, uh, all European countries, they, they had like a meeting. And this was in 1800s, where they decided that they would divide the... Um, the Africa and each of them end up taking a certain certain countries. So you had England took some countries, French took other countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and so on and so on. So um, all those things they made uh, our music very multicultural. And then after the Second World War, you had the communist people, uh, Cubans and Russians. They realized that because they never had opportunity to to head any country in Africa, that was the way to actually go there and help us. So many war, civil wars that you see in Africa, what people see, like in Angola. In Angola, they had civil war from 75 after the decolonization till 2001. What people would say easily is, you see, these African people, they hate each other. They've been in a huge civil war. But the truth was... It was America against Russia. Mm. So Russia was controlling Eduardo Santos, and they were controlling the guy that was controlling oil. Okay. America and England, they were controlling the guy that was controlling diamonds. So they were going there, and they were like, okay, we teach you guys uh, how to kill each other. We give you guns, and you guys can kill, keep kill each other, and we just keep taking and taking and taking. So what, when you have these situations, there is always one thing that always going to be, the, there is always a good side of it, the cultural side, the mixed culture. As a matter of fact, the word culture means mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, culture, culture is actually what we're doing. Someone from Guinea, you are from America, and we are exchanging culture. So in 60s, Cuban, they sent 60... 600,000 Cubans uh, in between Angola, uh, Congo, and some went to my country. Uh, So when those Cubans went there, obviously, they always bring their culture. Exactly. And at the time, they brought Son. Okay. And Son had a huge influence, huge influence in many African, African music. I never heard this. Included Simba. So, Compa, 
was very popular in in many African countries, especially African countries that were colonized by French, and Compa and uh, the Guadeloupe and Martinique, which they later they create Zouk. And Zouk was very, very popular in France. And from France, he went into Africa. And when Zouk became popular in 1885, uh, remember, in 85, I was nine years old. I had, uh, so I was still young. So for me, Zouk became almost like the type of music I like. Mm. Uh, although well, I... I also like Sukus, okay. which is a musical genre from Congo and influenced many other musics in Africa. And reggae also was also a huge thing in Africa. So these three, Son, Reggae, Sukus, they, they were in the base of many musical genres that was created later. Mm. And, but in the 80s, Duke was the biggest thing. And right. It's Kassav and everybody, right? Yeah, so since I remember, Zouk become the, my type of music. Until today, I can tell you that I like 10 times more any Zouk song than any Kizomba. Okay, okay, it originated. Yes, because every time I listen to Zouk, it reminds me of my childhood. It's nostalgic, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, which sometimes creates some bar- barriers. Uh, because many times I'm in festivals and the DJs play a song that uh, I will give an example. There is a beautiful song that I love that was the favorite song of my stepmom, the one that died. Oh, what's the name of it? Uh, is uh, <laughs> Venezuela. By who? Uh, it's from. Uh, uh, Gilo. So it's from a singer from Guadeloupe. I'm going to check it out. Yes. Okay, so it's G-I-L-L-O. Uh, and Venezuela. So this song is it's really, really, for me, it's a beautiful song. And I was in a festival and DJ played and I could not dance that song because of the memories that he brings. Mm, right, right, right. Uh, but then what happened... Obviously, people doesn't know. So a lady just jumped on me and she was like, do you dance? And I asked her uh, if she would mind we could dance the next one because this song, I didn't want to dance this song. But for the person, I sound like an arrogant person because she asked me to dance and I didn't, I didn't want to dance with her. And this is one of the things that I try to explain to my students. We grew up with these songs. So... We, as a human, we have songs that we like, right. and we have songs that we do not like. So also, they need to try to understand that when we are on the dance floor, we, yes, we are professional, but there is a human being there. So, and dance is supposed to be something that should come from your heart. So there is some songs that when I dance, I just dance because someone asked me to dance, and there is no feeling there. Okay. I'm just being mechanic. And there is certain songs that, to me, actually try to find someone to dance because I'm, I go crazy. <laughs> and, and that is the power of music. So till today, and for many Africans from my generation, 
they will tell you that Zook and Kompa, they're actually their favorite genre. I understand that, man. I had I had never heard anyone say that, um, you know, song or Cuban music was actually so popular, man. That's very interesting to hear. I'm uh, I'm very curious to hear about, man. So, you know, you, you moved to Portugal, man. Um, you know, I guess, and were you were you big into dancing in Portugal as well? Was that was you know uh, Posada very big in Portugal at that time, or not really? Okay, so. So when when we and this is very important to explain, when we immigrants went to Portugal, we again, like I said before, we realized that in Portugal we have no nationality; we are just black people. Uh, but among us, we realized that we had something in common that unite all of us: Zuc and Compa. Mm. So the first clubs that we had in Portugal, they they mainly play Zouk and Compa. And if you are in Kizomba, you are going to listen very quickly to the word Palop. Right, exactly, of course. Okay, so Palop is actually it... an uh, a- acron- acronym, uh, which means uh, Portuguese countries that speak Portuguese language. Exactly. But that is the name that was created and actually a few weeks ago i made a post explaining to people what really means palop for us okay so if you take out the the name you uh, you will understand that palop was almost like a new identity that we create in portugal because the moment we realized that in portugal we had no nationality palop become our nationality so instead of me coming to you and say, I'm from Guinea, where are you from? I'm Palop. Well, <laughs> Palop really doesn't mean anything. But right. that was almost like identity we create. So our clubs, they used to they used to call it Palop clubs. So it was a club where we could all meet together. And those clubs, they were mainly among the African immigrants. Although it existed in Portugal, but it was almost like an underground thing. Uh, so underground that we didn't have many Portuguese in our club, not because we didn't want them to be there, because many, but mainly because many of them would say that's the black area. I don't. That is not really my thing, you know. It's it's ghetto, you know. Uh, it's it was mainly from 2005, 2006, and especially in 2010 with the big boom of Kizomba, they suddenly. Portugal belong, became something important for Kizomba. But it's very important to explain that, yes, Kizomba existed many decades in Portugal, but only amongst the African culture. Um, uh, sometimes I even listen to some Portuguese saying, oh, yes, uh, I'm from Portugal. Like, if it means that, oh, no, Kizomba is part of my culture. It's not. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. It's almost like I think the best, best example I can give is jazz. Although jazz existed in America, but it was mainly a black American thing. Of course. It was, uh, okay, today it's a mainstream uh, musical genre where many people listen, but blues, jazz, they are mainly African-American people. They, are, they weren't really white American people. They weren't really Asian-American people. So, although it exists in America, but it belonged to a 
and a subculture inside of the country. Does that make sense? Right. Of course, exactly. So this was what Kizombo, Pasad, or Zook, or whatever we used to call it before. This is what it meant to us. So at that time, obviously, Kizomba was not popular. It was not a mainstream thing. It was not commercial. We would not teach Kizomba to people. We would learn Kizomba among families. Uh, and Kizomba was a way of bonding because I would learn Kizomba from my father or mm. from my mom. Uh, and again, it gave me some beautiful uh, memories. And then years after or later when... Kizomba become commercialized. We start listening to words, sensual dance, sexual dance. And for us, it's almost like you, you are stabbing us because you cannot tell me that that dance that I learned with my mom is a sexual mm. dance. Uh, the sexuality, uh, it's a human thing that, it's human that put, dances are not sexual. Right. It's human behavior that makes the dance become sexualized or not. So this is why you see many times when you see African fighting and say, don't call our dance sexual because our dance is not sexual. Mm -hmm. Because it was a very family dance. But the moment it become commercialized, uh, that family thing disappeared because it become, um, it become a business thing which it makes sense. If I'm teaching my class, the, the, my students that will come for the first time, they have no family connection with me. They don't know me. So they are going there to pay for product and to get the product. So that family aspect end up disappeared. And then it creates different things on the dance. So yes, we used to dance, but there was no one that can tell you that in the 80s or 90s, oh, I was the king in Kizomba or Pasada because, no, we were just, we didn't have, we have the natural competition between guys, especially our ego. If uh, I hang out with you and we go to a club and all the girls want to dance with you, damn, man, I will, <laughs> I'm going to get home and start practicing because next week I want to be the king. Mm. So... A part of those small egos that we have among uh, friends, we didn't, there was no business side of it. There was no money side of it. There was no commercial side of it. So it was beautiful at the time. I'm very curious to hear, man. Um, you know, I was born in the 90s and I was born in America, man. So I don't know anything about this, but, you know, I guess how and when did Kizumba start to become commercialized, you know? Okay. I would, if you keep doing interviews, I would uh, advise you to speak with Pichu. Okay, I would love to have him on. Yes, of course. I, I can put in connect with him because oh, man, I would love that. is who we consider our master. Uh, yeah, I, I've been informed he, he created the, the pedagogy, right, for Kizumba. Is that correct? So he was one of the first people uh, teaching Kizomba. And he, he, told me, he told me that he started teaching in the 90s. But at the time, obviously, he didn't have many people interested in Kizomba. So he would be in Sasa places, Sasa areas, and they would do like um, a demo. They would do like a, a, a class demo to try to push people. 
but then from Portugal, some people that were learning Portugal immigrate to other countries like England, like uh, Spain, like France, and they had that bug of Kizomba on them. Um, when you move to these countries, you realize, damn, the dance here is very strong. So you see people teaching salsa, you see people teaching tango, you see people teaching ballroom, and then you realize, actually, probably my dance uh, also has power to be taught. So Pechu created the, the pedagogy of teaching, he created the syllabus that many of us use today. Uh, and like I always say, if today Kizomba is popular, I think that he deserves something very important in, our, in everything we do, because without him, today I leave from the dance. And that would never happen if no one started. Okay, I understand this from the 90s then, man. So, so I'm very curious to hear, man. Um, I, I guess what was, what was your kizomba journey like so you know i understand you grew up dancing it and everything i guess um you know when you move to portugal and i guess you graduate high school are you are you are you big into dancing at that time or do you have other prerogatives okay so again to refer inside of our culture someone that used to go to clubs on a regular base would not be seen as a good person because Again, we are immigrants. Our parents, they want us all to finish the university because they, they, the goal is for us to have something. Um, okay, you were born in the 90s, but for the generation that was born in the 80s, most of our parents, for them, they wanted us all to be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, it was almost like a trend thing. Um, most of your parents would work hard to provide you the, the means for you to just focus on your study. So I finished uni, I have uh, my, my real profession is tourism management. Uh, but I used to go out on a regular basis to dance. Obviously many times I would wait for my father to sleep. And then I remember I used to steal his car, uh, to be honest. Uh, I had my, my, my cousins, so they used to come, and I used to take the key, put the car, and we used to push the car till far, so we could make it work without him realizing. Uh, and we used to go out almost like seven days a week. So, yes, I was, I was known, but everybody in my generation was known also because we used to be all the time doing the same thing. And just going uh, on social dancing, right? Exactly. And I never imagined that one day we would be able to teach Kizomba. As a matter of fact, the first time I heard that someone was teaching Kizomba, I was like, it's crazy. You don't need to teach Kizomba. It's something that everybody learns. You just need to <laughs> And today, and this is what happened when I was in England, and the first time I tried to teach, I realized I know how to dance, but I never thought. And dancing and teaching... Two different skills. Two different skills. And so I, I didn't know how to break down steps. I would just... Which is 
many times is actually how we Africans we teach, which is I do, I, I do, and you follow. But again, very interesting. That is another cultural inquisition. It's not really African culture. Because when we were enslaved and colonized, we weren't allowed to, to go to school. We are allowed to learn how to write, to, to learn how to read. So many of things that we learned was watching the colonizers. And you have the ones you call, in America, they call house niggers. Uh, which we also have there. So many of them, those that was working the house, they would be the one that would have access to see the white people use instruments. And then they would, uh, when we, they would meet, they would try to replicate uh, those instruments. And well, one thing is you learn how to do it. Another thing you do something you think you understand. So you end up creating different sounds, you end up creating different rhythms just because you try to mimic something that you listen. And so that skill we create because that was our way to, to learn. That was our way to observe and learn. So it become almost like part of culture, which is you observe and you learn to that. Uh, so then later when I moved to England, and this is why when I started teaching initially, for me it was just like, I do you follow? And people were like, look at me like, is this dude real? <laughs> so I'm paying money and dude is just telling me, it's easy, you can just follow. Then after I lost everybody, <laughs> and I realized, oops, maybe I'm not meant to teach. Uh, something that I didn't refer, my stage name, Ed Event, it's Eddie Event, Organized oh. Event. I'm being organized event since 99. Okay, I didn't. Okay, I'll make sure I say it proper next time. This year, uh, I'm actually going to do 20 years organizing events. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And the Ed Events teacher, it was just a bonus because, like I said, I never even imagined that. I would be actually good on it. Mm, mm, okay, okay. So, so you're telling me though, um, you know, so Kizomba just beside everything, it was something that was really in your culture, something that everybody did, man. So, so I, I guess what what made you start to take it more seriously? You know, was it was it once you realized you could make money off it that you decided to go all in on it? Okay. This is a funny story, but it's a real story. I have a big mouth. <laughs> if you do a little bit of research, you will understand that the name Ed Events is known by someone that is very outspoken. So when I was in England, uh, in Portugal, I used to organize, uh, I had a night that I used to organize on Wednesdays. Uh, and in 2008, uh, in Portugal, they created the first Kizomba festival ever. And it was called Africa Dancer. The name of the festival called Africa Dancer. And, and, and who organized that? Who, who was the creator of it that? It was Portuguese people. Some Portuguese people that was, uh, they, was, they used to go to Angola and they were related with African. So they created that. Uh, and there was a competition. Uh, and I remember they, they, they used my space to do one of the um, eliminations there. Um, 
and it was funny because at the time we almost like needed to grab people on the street and ask them, do you dance kizomba? Yeah, yeah, do, do you want to compete? So, because no one was interested, there were no competition whatsoever. We, we used to have competition in club, but it was just for fun. Right. Uh, so then we did it in 2009, me and my cousin, no, 2008, I'm sorry, me and my cousin, uh, which is, his name is Rico Suave, he's also a Kizoma teacher, a very popular Kizoma teacher. Uh, then my cousin, he goes to England and he spent holiday uh, during the summer and then he returned and he said to me, look, I think we should go to England because Kizomba people are teaching Kizomba the dance and I think we could actually do something there. So I'm like, I'm not doing anything in Portugal. I, I'm happy to go. So I organized myself to go and two weeks before we decided to go, my cousin came to me and said, you know what? I'm in love right now for this girl and I want to try to see how what, what you gonna how the life's gonna be. So I, I'm not gonna move now. He backed out. And I'm like, okay, uh, I already have my my ticket. So um, at the time the mother of my second child, she was living there. We weren't together anymore, but she moved to England. So I spoke with her and she said, Look, I can help you, you can speak stay six months here uh, in my house but then after that you need to to find something so i arrived there i started working restaurants and then i talking with someone in a restaurant i told them that i would like to organize events the the chief the chef in in the kitchen is nephew own a club in london so I said, you know what, let me speak with my nephew, maybe he's interested to organize something. So we went there, and he, it's funny because one of his business partner, he was a guy from Guinea that was helped my, by my father when he was young. Okay. So we started chatting, and then he asked me, so who is your parent? And I told him, my father is this person. We're like, oh, I know him, blah, blah. So he ended up giving me, allowing me to be on his pace, to do whatever I need for one year without paying anything. Awesome. So I decided to organize parties there. We started in December 2009, me and a lady that used to live there called Marie Doyen. And by summer in 2010, we had the biggest Kizomba party in London. Uh, the venue was small. It could only get 300 people. And we are having 300 people every single Sunday. We That's awesome. Once a week. But then they had teachers there. And I made a public post saying, in England, no one teaches Kizomba. No one knows how to teach Kizomba. Everybody teaches Kisalsa. So it was a huge thing. Everybody like, who is this guy? He has a big mouth. He never taught in his life. And now he's talking like... Uh, so there is a lady called Norma. She's from Jamaica. She also teaches Kizomba. She lives in England. She came to me and as she a said, no, no, Norma Facey, right? Yes, no, Norma okay, Facey. Yeah. Uh, so she came to me, she said, look, I love you because she's come to my parties. And we used to talk and, she, and I used to tell, okay, this is Zook, this is Kompa, this is Kizomba, this is Semba. And she used to tell me, you, saw, you are very knowledgeable, why you don't teach? And you know what? I think you should teach because you have a big mouth. Um, 
uh, you, you are in a good situation because you don't teach, you can criticize everybody. You should be teach to see how good you are to allow other people to criticize your work also. So, bear in mind that in 2009, I already tried to teach among my friends, but I realized that I wasn't good. So she was making me pressure, and then she took me and Tokosta, which is another big name in Kizomba, uh, she took me, took us to her class, and she, at the time, she asked us if we could just help her, because she needed a man to, to do the movement. And when we got there, she announced that we would be the new teacher. She, she gave up a class of 30 people for us to start teaching, me and Tokosta. We started teaching, after one month, we lost everybody. Oh, wow. Because we had no clue. Uh, we, we had knowledge, but we had knowledge about history because we went through that. We had knowledge about Zook, the music. We had a lot of knowledge about music, but we, we had, we had no, no understanding how to teach people. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I love um, challenge. Mm. Everything for me, it's, if I see a challenge, uh, and the, moment, the more you say you cannot do it, the more I want to do it. Okay. So I decided that I wanted to be a good teacher. I contacted Pechu, and I went to his house. I spent one week, and he helped me initially to understand how to teach. Um, then when I returned to England, I decided to create my own uh, pedagogy, my own methodology, uh, methodology how to teach. And this is when I create Pitanga. Okay, okay. So, and from Pitanga, what I was having, I was having a lot of people coming in, and I was using them almost like a guinea pig. Guinea pig. Mm -hmm. So I would try this movement, and it would not work. I would try this way of teaching, it would not work, and I would change it. And it was amazing because we are a group of people that we used to meet on Saturdays, 12 p.m. And we would work till Sunday, 12 p.m. And we, we had like a night. And the person that provided the night for us called um, Louis Sinclair. Uh, he was one of the most important people for me because he, he provided a space and he gave me time and it took the pressure for me to uh, be able to please others. So it gave me time. It just right. do, do the way you want. I trust in you and blah, blah. So for me, it was one of the most important person in my journey. Everybody was important. Mm -hmm. Tokosa was very important. Marie Doyen was very important. But I felt like Louis gave me uh, respect. And that's many times more important than everything else. Uh, real quick, I'm I'm curious. Um, so in 2010, you were about you were about what 35 at that time? We were close to 40. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and so and so real quick, man. Um, I want to ask you for I want to hear some advice. You know, or words of wisdom from you for someone else who may be an aspiring teacher, and you know they want to. They want to be, you know, the best at it. Um, what words of wisdom or advice can you give to them so that they may not make the same mistakes that you made? Well, 
Mistakes you're always gonna make, make mistakes. There is no way for you to avoid that. It's it's part of everybody's journey. Like I said before, every option we take will take us to a different route. Okay, and we learn with mistakes. And maybe if we repeat the same mistakes, it will probably take us to the same thing, <laughs> and we will end up having the same results. <laughs> so. What I say to people is, and this is one of the things I, I feel like is missing, is don't rush to be a teacher. Enjoy your time as a dancer. Uh, because when you rush to be a teacher, you don't understand, but you are, your mistakes are affecting others. Oh, that's right. The, the main thing is people like to say, oh, no, I'm just teaching beginners because it's easy. Beginner is the, the most difficult one because actually it's where you change the dance. It's actually when you do it wrong is how you affect others. So enjoy your time of learning to dance because when you don't, when you don't think to be a teacher in the moment, you don't have that pressure on you. Uh, and after a while, decide what you like. It's all about what you like. It's all about your heart. Uh, now you have Kizom and you have Ruben Keys. Try to define what you want. If it's urban keys that you like, go for it. Focus on it. Try to be the best you can of it. Because, you know, it doesn't matter how much we try to fake a personality, but people can feel it. Be yourself. Be honest with yourself. If you're honest with yourself, you're always going to end up being honest with, the, with people. Uh, respect people and don't see people as a business thing. Remember that we are all human. Treat people the way you would like to be treated. And work. Because dance has a unique thing. You know when you start, there is no ending. Every day you need to work to improve. I was born and raised on the culture, and I still work and, and learn every single day. So one of the things I realized uh, once you think that you know it all, you die. So my real advice is work always to learn. Never lose the humility to keep working. Because I realize the society where we live, we have what I call fake humble, yeah, which is right. people that they talk nice. Oh, no, you know, I love you. You know, I follow you, but they will not go and work with you. They will not work anymore because they think, oh, I, I'm a teacher also. My students are going to be on the same class as him. I'm not going to be on the same class as them. So I'm not going to work. And you don't realize later your students are going to be better than you. And every, okay. student, and every single student you have is your potential competition. Because as a human, if I start learning a dance from you, after three or four years, you think I will not want to teach also? I will. And then, if I keep working, you're not, I'm naturally going to pass it. Exactly, yeah. Naturally. And people need to also be humble enough to understand their level. I have a video that I watched yesterday, and I was, I'm trying to download it because I really need to post a video. That video tells everything. We were watching X Factor, and we were watching the, the comic part, the one that goes and they think they're, they're good singers. And they scream, and then the guy say, look, you're really bad. Please leave. So there were a lady there. She was singing, and the guy told him, no, you're not good. 
And she said, how dare you tell me I'm not good? I'm being uh, working on uh, uh, training my, to be a singer for 10 years. I even have like a, a, a post-graduation of the singer. And, that's, and this happened on the dance. You see people take a course of 10 hours and they receive a, like a certificate or something, a right? Certificate, and suddenly they already think that I'm good because I have a certificate. But you know where is it, what is your certificate? Your quality as a dancer. Right, 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 right. That is your real certificate. It's not paper. Paper doesn't mean anything. And so I think that she's a very good example. She was like thinking, how dare you to tell I'm not good? And she was horrible. So working, uh, one, one, for me, what I thought is she got to a point that she thought, I did that for 10 years, it's enough. I don't need to evolve anymore. Mm. And then when she's confronted with someone that's going to be blank and tell her, you're not good. She's like, how dare? Mm. <laughs> I have a certificate. Which, so your certificate is your work. The product, you know, right? Keep working and you will see that everything else will come natural. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. And, and that's a... Uh... That can be very valuable to the people, man. Um, um, and that is a, it's a lesson for life. Of course. I keep working. I, I'm very curious, man. I want to ask you this, man. Um, you know, I guess going back to teaching, man, I, I'm very curious. Why is it important when teaching a dance? Why is it important to teach the history and the culture of it? Like, and why not just the steps? Can you, can you answer that to me? Of course. I will give you an example of Kizomba, because it's what I do. But I'll also give you an example of a dance from Cap Verde called Batuk. Okay? Uh, you should search for it. B-A-T-U-K-U. B-A-T-U-K-U. KU. Gotcha. Batuku. So Batuku was created by women in Cap Verde. It's only sing, it used to be by, uh, after 90s, they allow men now. But it used to be only sung by women, played by women, danced by women. Batuku was created by women that used to be raped and they used to get pregnant. So the lyrics used to talk about how they were pregnant. Uh, they, they used to talk about their story. But the lyrics was also to say, to the child they had, say, I know I had no plan to have you, but I'm taking the bad spirits and I want you to know that I'm going to raise you with all love, like if you were someone that I actually wanted to have. So it was a dance that was forbidden for many years, but it was kept alive. So when it comes to many African dance. It's very important to understand where they came from because we Africans, many of our history is not written, which again is not cultural, is um, uh, culturally imposed. Because again, remember, we are not allowed to write and read. So that was part of slavery and colonization because this is how the African control your you as a person. As a matter of fact, for people to understand, my name is Edson Monteiro. Edson, it's 
son of Edward. So it's actually English name. Monteiro is a Portuguese name. So uh, you see, truly I'm passing uh, a name and a surname that does not belong to me to my children. Means I really don't know who I am. I really don't know uh, my, my family roots. Uh, so this is why when we talk about especially teaching someone else culture, you need to have a profound respect because you suppose it telling someone else story. Mm. So if I'm, I am not from Angola, I'm came from Angola. So I feel like I have more responsibility than Angolans when uh, to know about Angolan history because I'm making money and I'm profiting from a culture that does not belong to me, from a uh. culture that to someone else. So the minimum I can do to that those those people is try to respect the culture and try to pass the culture. Because truly, what is dance? That is another form of language. Right. Uh, and many of our movements are very connected with our beliefs also. So the steps that for an outsider may only mean step for the people, it, it will have a different meaning. So if you're telling me that you're a Kizomba teacher, I feel like the best way for you to respect the culture, the best way for you to be honest with yourself and people that are paying, it's actually to understand the roots of what you're teaching. Because you see, uh, Western society and African society, culturally, they are very different. Musical understanding, they are very different. The way they perceive technicality is very different. Okay? So this is why when you see song become popular, it had to go into a mutation, into a change, into mambo. Because for most of Western, technicality comes from the upper body movement. So this is when you see the armed movement. Um, uh, for most Africans, also we have arms, but our technicality can come from hips down. It doesn't mean that we do not have armed movement in Africa. It just means that most of our technicality, we focus in hips down. So when the dance does not belong to Western society and we become commercialized, it will suffer that natural mutation. I... This is why you see, in order for people to actually enjoy bachata from Dominican, they had to create sensual bachata where they had to add the upper body movement. In order to really enjoy kizomba, they had to create urban keys to add the upper body movement. Now, in order to enjoy Tarashinha, they had to create a show where it has the upper body movement. So, oh, man, come on. <laughs> but that is a natural process of any dance that gets out of his own culture. It's the same thing. If you are in your house with your family uh, and you are raised there, your parents are going to have a certain respect of, uh, from you, your cousins, your friends. But once you get out of that, your house, and you are on the street, you're just another person. Right. And in order for you to many times to blend in, you actually need to observe someone else's culture 
you uh, many thing many times I see examples in America uh, and I was watching a YouTube video that was explaining a black person when he's going out to look for a job he changes his way of speech almost like a white person it's white boys right yes exactly so they I didn't know but they make the joke they say the white the white uh, voice so you see means that when African culture or Latin culture or anything that does not belong to Western society need to suffer a change. The same thing applied for Western rhythms that goes to Africa. Because you know the funny thing? In Africa, there is no partner dance. Yes, partner dance is a Western dance that went to Africa during the time of colonization. But because we weren't allowed to learn it, we were uh, observing, imitating we, it. We we mimic what we thought we were listening, but with a different rhythm, because we Africans, uh, this is another way, a different thing. Western normally they listen monorhythmic, African more normally listen polyrhythmic. So just from the music, there is already a different thing. So you see. Bachata is a polyrhythmic. When it became commercialized, they had to create urban bachata, which he had the heartbeat. They had to make it monorhythmic. Oh, so ho- ho- real quick, I, I don't I don't know the difference. So what, what is monorhythmic and polyrhythmic? What is that? Okay. So monorhythmic is you have many different uh, instruments that create uh, an harmonic uh, harmonic sound. So they, they create almost like a unisound. Polyrhythmic, you have rhythms, uh, different rhythms on top of different rhythms, on top of, of it. So when you listen to an African rhythm, the drum, each instrument, they create rhythms that they don't blend each other. Does that make sense? I think so, and I, I think I'm trying. I'm, I think I'm recognizing songs like now that you say it. Uh, just you can search monorhythm and polyrhythmic. You will uh, yeah. see many, many videos that explain. So once you have that, and you as an instructor, as a dance instructor, for me it's part of your obligation to understand that, and it's why I say the traveling, the living different culture, living different countries, give you. And, uh, a base to understand those people. Yeah. Uh, so once you understand that, you will understand how to approach approach to people. So I cannot live believing in in China and expecting that a Chinese person needs to dance his own like an Angolan. It's impossible. Right. So the same way, I cannot expect that an American person that was never born and raised in African culture need to dance exactly the same. But you know what I understand? The moment you teach people history and you make them understand there is something behind the dance, their love for the dance becomes much stronger. It's almost like the connection they create to that dance becomes very powerful. So all these things is very important for you to understand so it would help you to build something and to help your students to understand and to fall in love. 
never teach anything that you are not really in love for it. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, real quick, how much time do you have, Eddie? I have 10 minutes. Okay, all right. Real quick, I want to ask you this, man. Um, tell me the importance of musicality for one, and the second part is how does someone improve their musicality? That is very, it's very hard. Uh, okay, for me, music is the most important. Uh, the real mastery in any dance is the music. Uh, you cannot dance without music for me. So, how do you understand the music? What I say to people is try to consume, consume music a lot. Listen in your house, listen in your headphones, listen in your car. Uh, try to consume. Why? Because in 10 or 15 songs, you're going to find one or two that you really love. Yeah. Once you really love, you will see that when you dance that song, the way you do the interpretation is different. When we dance, we're literally trying to use the language. we expressing uh, what we listen from the music. We're talking. Uh, the breakdown is something that we can do another video if you want uh, for that because it's very hard. Mm. Very important. Western has the system of breaking down everything in beat. We don't have as African. Okay? Uh, we perceive and understand music differently. 90% of African, when we dance, we use the louder instrument in any music voice. Right, right, because right. the feeling and the emotion of the music come from the voice. So, and most of Western, when they dance, they, they, they follow the beat. So just from that, we have different way of doing the musical interpretation. Okay, so that is a topic that's very hard and it cannot be explained in two minutes. I understand. I understand. Hey, so check this out real quick, Eddie. I want you to ask, answer me this, man. Um, give me one tip that can make anyone a better dancer immediately. Do not learn to dance without loving the music. The music is the key. Once you really fall in love for the musical genre, everything gonna be easy. The music is the master. The only master that exists is the music. Alright, the music dictates everything, man. Uh, so yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, man. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Eddie, man, I really, I really want to thank you, you know, for taking time out here to talk to me, man. I don't mind. We can come uh, try to find another date to do part two. Hey, hey. I feel like we could be talking for longer. Hey, of course, man. Of course, man. Real quick, Eddie, I got a couple more questions, man. You know, um, what are some of your upcoming events, man? What, you know, what do you have going on in your life? I have my festival in Vegas called She. Uh, last year we did it and it was very successful. Uh, it's a festival that has three uh, events happening on the same festival. So you have the Kizomba room, uh, and you have the Urban Keys room, nice. and you have the dinner room, dinner gala, which is where I have the singers. They do a cappella, and it's a more intimate. And so that I cannot, unfortunately, give you the date because I'm being going back and forth. It was supposed to be in May. It was May last year. It was supposed to be in June. Then we changed into April, and now we may return into May because it's being really. A big struggle to have the to do the contract with hotel. 
Hopefully this week I'm going to have it. I also have another festival in Kenya uh, that happened in October 2020. And it's a beautiful project which most of the money of their project go to help children in Africa. Uh, and most of the instructors we bring, everyone that goes there, we ask them to bring an extra bag with clothes they don't use, with toys. So after the festival, Monday and Tuesday, we actually get together and we go to children's places and we distribute all those things. So it's more helping thing. I have Pitanga that I do in Portland and I will always will do in Portland. Uh, although I want to do it one or two years in Portugal, but it's always going to be Portland, Portland and Portugal. And that, that is a small event only for 50 people, which is the real Kizomba, because we do a house party where you have the instructor that cook for the students. And the, so it's a much more intimate, it's more for people to understand the real meaning of Kizomba. That's awesome, so, man. And I do travel. As a matter of fact, I'm traveling at 5 a.m. now uh, to Liverpool. Oh. Are you teaching weekly in in in, uh, in, in Oregon, in Portland? Uh, I used to teach weekly, but because of my traveling, it's been really hard to be. Okay. Consistent. So I stopped for now, but I already miss it, and I feel like if I really stop, I would lose my my family here. So I'm actually thinking to return again on the weekly basis. Okay. Okay. But and that's. I'm, I'm preparing to do a monthly party also in Portland. Okay. Okay. And and last one, real quick, Eddie. Um, you know. How can people get in contact with you, man? You know, how can people reach out to you? Ed Events. You can Google it because you can find me through Ed Events or Angry <clears throat> Angry Events. Angry. Yeah, people used to make jokes that I'm always angry and they start making memes about me being Angry Events or it become uh, a trend. So you can find me you, through Ed Events. You can find me to my like page, to my Instagram, to my Facebook page. That's the best way to contact you. Hey, hey, hey. Like I said, hey, man, thank you so much, Betty. I truly enjoyed this um this conversation, man, because you know so much about the history and everything, man. Thank you very much. And um, I need to go. I understand. All right, Eddie, take it easy. Hey everyone. Uh if you made it this far to all the way to the end of the video, I want to thank you so much. Um, my overall goal with making these interviews and these episodes is, uh, to give a voice to dancers, you know, to give them a platform to speak their story. So, uh, if this is of value to anyone, then that, that means the world to me. Um, my overall goal is to give value to the dance community. So... If you find no value in this, and I, I urge you to please let me know where I can improve on. Um, I I truly want to, you know, just uh, give value and content to to the dance community. Um, so please let me know how I can improve, where I'm messing up, because to be a hundred percent honest with you, um, you know, I'm learning along the way as I do this. I, I truly am. So. Um, to be able to interact with, you know, the dance community. It means the world to me because it, it gives me feedback and it lets me know, you know, what I'm doing right, where I can improve upon, um, you know, what I'm doing wrong, which I feel like might maybe more important. 
Um, so please, if you all could could comment and just let me know what you think, it, it means the world to me because you know that feedback just helps me improve. So um, please comment uh, as well. You know, please like and subscribe. That means a lot as well. Um, but you know, I want to say thank you so much for for just watching this because it means the world to me. Um, you know, I wanna. I want to take you on this journey of the Two Love Feet podcast. You know, I'm, I'm very excited for it. So once again, thank you so much.